Well, thank you, choir. Well, tonight we continue studying uh, the book of Matthew, and in this section, Jesus' march toward Jerusalem, where he has already prophesied multiple times that he is going to die. And as we look at this section in Matthew, uh, we especially see on display the lavish grace of God. The word grace is not used in this section, but the themes and the emphasis of the story are clearly about the grace of God. Now, as one theologian and musician, Shai uh, Lin, has summarized, grace is God's kindness to the undeserving. Grace is God's kindness to the under- undeserving. And the beauty of this story is that it shows us raw human emotion, what we're going to see at first, raw human emotion, especially in the person of Peter, and then vivid, vivid literary imagery in order to let God's lavish grace surprise us in a new way. And of course, if you're like me, uh, you need to be surprised by God's grace. You need to be refreshed with the truth that God is gracious and kind to the undeserving, to people like you and me who do not deserve his grace. So with that said, let's look at our passage. We're in Matthew 19, and we're, we're back here after taking a short break in Ezekiel last week, but tonight we're picking up in verse 27, which is where we left off about two weeks ago. Well, the tension driving this narrative is a rather uh, incredulous question, you might say, from Peter. After Jesus uh, promises this rich young man that he is able to enter the, the kingdom of heaven because all things are possible with God, after he gives him that promise, all things are possible with God, Peter speaks up and asks a rather uncomfortable question to Jesus. If you look at verse 27, he first asserts that he and the disciples, you'll notice he's speaking for the disciples. He says, we, we have left everything to follow you. And then he asks, what then will we have? Now, Peter wants to know, he wants to know, is it worth following Jesus? He essentially is saying, what will we have in return for our obedience Jesus, as you can see, a, a, a very bold question, and it, it's exhibiting his, his raw emotion. They are on their way to Jerusalem. Jesus has been talking a lot about the fact that he is going there to suffer and to die, and as I've repeated over and over again, those who follow Jesus must also be willing to take up their cross and follow him. And Peter's question, as raw as it is, is helpful, actually, because it exposes emotions that we feel when things get difficult in our pursuit of Christ. As we are following Christ and things become challenging and we have to sacrifice more and more to stay on the path following Jesus, we ask ourselves, is this worth it? What will we have? As Peter asks. Now, Jesus has told his followers, as he tells us, that they must be willing to make great sacrifice if they're going to continue with him. And when Jesus says that the rich young man is able to enter the kingdom of heaven, it seems that Peter is essentially asking, wait, even he can get in? Even someone like that? Well, what about us? We left everything to follow you. He is asking Jesus whether their sacrifices, the things that they have done, leaving behind family and houses, he's asking whether it has been worth it. When Jesus said to them, follow me, they left behind their fishing boats and they followed him. 
They left behind their job. They left behind their families. And now, as Jesus keeps telling them that they have to take up their cross, while also saying that this rich man who has everything is going to get in, Peter wants to know, is following Christ worth the cost? And I assume each of us have asked that question. Maybe you're asking it right now with some problem that you're dealing with where Jesus is calling you to follow him in a certain direction, which means you will have to sacrifice a great deal to stay on the path to following Christ by the power of the Spirit. Well, Jesus doesn't flinch at Peter's words. Instead, he begins to answer in 28, and he gives an otherworldly answer. And And I mean that literally. His answer has to do with the new creation. Or as Jesus says in 28, he calls it the new world. He points Peter and the disciples and us as we are struggling with whether it's worth it to follow Christ, he points us to the future new world. The new world that, yes, is in continuity with this good creation of God's, but nevertheless a new world, as Jesus calls it. You might even think of it as a new space-time continuum in some sense, if, if you like physics. And he tells them what they will receive in that new world. Now, before we explore what they will receive in the new world and what we will receive if we continue to follow Jesus, I I hope you can already see the relevance of these few verses. Jesus is telling each of us why he is worth following. He is telling each of you, by the Spirit, he's speaking to each of you and he is telling you, it's still worth it to follow me today. It's still worth it to follow me tomorrow. It's still worth it to persevere with me to the end. Wherever you are at tonight in your relationship with God, wherever you're at, if you're, if you're wondering whether Jesus is worth the cost or whether you're feeling a great deal of hope in your relationship with Christ, wherever you are at, Jesus gives you an answer in this passage to the question, is Christ worth the cost? He gives us an answer in two ways. Now, first... In 28 through 30, the the end of 19, he reveals what his followers will receive. He reveals to us what we will receive as his followers. And then in 21 through 16, he reveals why his followers receive anything at all. So if you're thinking about how you're going to organize this passage, the the first section, what will we we receive for following Christ? What What will we receive for following Christ? And then the second section... Why will we receive it? Well, look with me at 28 through 30 where we see the content of what we will receive. Jesus provides two answers. First, he tells us, he tells Peter and the disciples, he tells us that they will receive authority and then second, immortality. Authority and immortality. These are the two promises that he gives. First, authority. Look at the end of 28. Verse 28, you'll see that Peter and the 12 Peter and the other 11, the 12, will sit on 12 thrones judging the tribes of Israel. Now, this is rather obscure, and it may not be how you have your morning devotionals thinking about the 12 tribes of Israel and the future world, but this is relevant because it's teaching Peter about the authority that he's going to receive and why he should continue to persevere. What will we have, he says to Jesus, and Jesus' answer goes straight to the new world and the authority that Peter and the Twelve will have in the new world. It's incredibly important to Peter and the other disciples because 
They have left everything to follow Jesus. They have been ridiculed by the religious establishment of Israel along the way. You may remember when they were plucking grain on the Sabbath, the Pharisees are, are harassing Jesus about the fact that the disciples are, are picking grain on the Sabbath. And the same thing happens in, in Matthew 15. They're not washing their hands correctly according to the tradition of the elders. And they're cr- getting criticized by the religious leaders. And we know that, that more and more suffering is about to come their way as Jesus gets closer and closer to Jerusalem. But now they are told that in a new world, They will sit on 12 thrones judging the 12 tribes of Israel. Jesus is promising that the bullies, the Pharisees, the bullies will have their day in court. The injustice that they are perpetuating against the disciples will not continue. And if you've ever been bullied, uh, this would be a, a wonderful comfort to know that justice is coming for those who persecute you because of Christ. And that is the case for the disciples. And in case they think that they will be given the right in that day to in some way be vindictive or or vengeful, uh, Jesus shows them that their authority on that day in the new world is actually derived from him. He says in, in 28 that the Son of Man will sit on his glorious throne And those who have followed him will sit on their 12 thrones, talking about the disciples. Now, this passage is a direct meditation on Daniel 7, 13 and 14, a a prophecy that Daniel has a vision of. And he says, I saw in the nights, in the night vision, and behold, with the clouds of heaven, there came one like a son of man. This is Jesus's way that he describes himself early in the gospel. And it's maybe a way of him saying that he is like a human when he says son of man. But later on in the gospel, Jesus is using this phrase more and more to describe his deity. He is saying that he came like a son of man and he came to the ancient of days and was presented before the ancient of days. This is Daniel 7 still. And to him, that is to the son of man, was given dominion and glory and a kingdom that all peoples, nations, and languages should serve him. He says his dominion is an everlasting dominion which shall not pass away, and his kingdom one that shall not be destroyed. Now Jesus, as the Son of Man, notice that's what he refers to himself as in 28. Jesus, as the Son of Man, tells us that he will come with the clouds of heaven to the ancient of days, that is God the Father, and receive all dominion and glory. And he is explaining to his 12 that they are the new authorities who will sit on their thrones in that day to judge the nation of Israel, to judge the 12 tribes of Israel. And not only that, not only will they judge the 12 tribes of Israel, but as we meditated on this morning in the morning service, they are the new Israel. Why? Because of their pursuit of Jesus. Because they have followed Jesus, there is a new world coming where they will receive authority. And that authority to the 12, specifically, will give them the right to sit with Jesus and judge the nation of Israel. Why? Because Jesus is the faithful Israelite. He is the one who has actually obeyed the law, the Torah, He is the one who has actually fulfilled everything that God commanded Israel to do. Jesus did it. And by his grace, those who follow him, these 12, 
get to sit on the 12 thrones and receive authority to judge those who are persecuting them, those who are bullying them, those who are going to kill Jesus. But Peter's asking, is it worth it? Peter's asking, is it worth following Christ? And Jesus ministers directly to him and the 12. And Peter should be thinking, yes, it is worth it. There is a day coming where justice will prevail. It's what Peter should be thinking. It's what we should be thinking. And somehow, we don't get to access this thought by just thinking about it on behalf of Peter. God has not only given the 12 apostles the authority to judge. No. He has given all of his saints the authority to judge. All followers of Christ receive the authority to judge the world alongside of Jesus in his glorious throne. Now, what are you talking about, Gavin? 25 years later, after Jesus' crucifixion and resurrection, the church in Corinth The church in Corinth is having all sorts of fights. They're bickering over all sorts of problems. They they have infighting. They have grotesque sin, things that that even the non-believers weren't doing. It was was a, a terrible scene there in Corinth. And Paul writes a letter to them in 1 Corinthians chapter 6, verse 2. He asks them a question that's relevant to Jesus' words in Matthew 19. He says, do you not know that the saints will judge the world? Do you not know that the saints will judge the world, Paul says, to the Corinthian church? It's not just the 12 who will judge the 12 tribes of Israel. The saints, that is all who are in Christ, will judge the world at the new creation. Well, this means that while the, the 12 disciples will judge Israel, all the saints, that is all Christians, will judge the rest of the world. So if you in this evening are thinking, I'm tired of, I'm tired of feeling like I don't fit in in this world because I follow Christ. I'm tired of feeling like, like enduring with Jesus is, is just really not worth it. I'm tired of feeling like I gave up way more than I received in return. If you can resonate with Peter who says, we have left everything and followed you, Jesus. What will we have? If you can, can resonate with that, which I think you have, or at least I think you are, I think that this promise of authority that is applied to the 12 and also applied to all Christians, this promise of authority sitting with Jesus on, on a throne near his glorious throne, on that day, you will receive the authority to bring justice to the world. You will be sitting next to Christ on his glorious throne. It will humble you, but you will also bring justice because justice is an attribute of God's glory. The crucified and risen and ascended and enthroned Christ will be next to you on his glorious throne and you will do your job with dignity of dispensing justice to the world if you continue to follow Christ. God will allow you to be an agent of his righteous justice on that day. This is the answer to the question, is it worth it? 
According to Jesus, this is the answer to the question, is it worth it? When Peter asks him, what will we have in response to following you? Well, imagine the the calming effect that this should have had on Peter. He must have been shocked. You mean the Pharisees? You mean even the Levites? All the tribes will be judging them? Jesus, of course, was clear, yes. They would have authority to judge the 12 tribes. This should have brought a wave of calm over Peter, who's wondering whether it's worth it to follow Christ. Instead of wanting to seek revenge, which he most likely wanted to do, notice he was the the one who pulled out his sword when they did take Jesus. Peter had a vindictive streak in him. He wanted to defend Jesus. He was rash at times. Instead of wanting to seek revenge, Peter knew that there was coming a day when he would exercise righteous justice on behalf of God. And so will you. So will you. This should bring calm to whatever dispute that you are struggling with because you follow Christ. You will get to disperse justice on behalf of of the risen king. Now, the one area that I would say this should especially humble us and calm us and chasten us and also uh, give us courage is in the political realm. Instead of growing bitterness inside of us over what we see in the world, we should hear this truth that there is coming a day where justice will be served and those who are in Christ, surely by grace, will get authority, they will receive authority to judge the world. It doesn't change that you, whether you should be involved in politics or not. That's not the point. But it does change the way that Christians engage in, in politics. Now, wherever you land on the political spectrum, I hope you're not hearing me advocate at all. That's not my intent in any way. Wherever you land, you should know, based on this passage... That justice will come. And it should enable you to forgive people instead of growing bitter because you're not going to feel the need to exercise vindictiveness against them. No, you know there is a day of justice coming. And not only that, it enables you to, to plead with people to avoid the day of judgments. You don't have to get revenge in this world based on this promise of authority. You can trust God will take care of that and that you will be involved even in the dispensing of justice. Today, however, today, you get to let your light shine before others, as Jesus says, so that they may see your good works and give glory to your Father who is in heaven. If people ridicule you, or abuse you or others, you can work for justice now through your good works. And you can also pray for them instead of growing angry and vindictive. Why is that the case? Jesus is promising you in these words that justice will come and you will be a part of it. So in addition to thinking about authority, uh, which is the clear promise that Jesus gives to the disciples and the clear promise that the rest of the New Testament teaches for the whole church, in addition to authority, um, you will also receive immortality 
if you continue to follow Jesus. Or as he says in verse 29, you will inherit eternal life. Look with me at 29. Notice the language of inheritance. Who inherits things? Is it employees? Is it friends? No. It's daughters and sons who inherit things. Daughters and sons will inherit eternal life. If you gave up family for Christ, you will inherit eternal life. You will live forever in the family of God. That's what Jesus is promising here. For some, the promise of authority is what's going to enable you to endure. But for others, the promise of immortality is what's going to enable you to endure. You will live forever in the family of God, which, according to Jesus' language, is a hundred times better than the best things on earth, things like family and owning land and houses. The eternal life in the family of God is a hundred times better than that, Jesus is saying. The eternal life that awaits those who make sacrifices for Jesus' namesake is of such a grandeur and magnitude that Jesus uses the, ble- the best blessings of this life to drive the point home. In Luke 22, he adds even more richness to the picture. At the Passover meal, he says this to, the, to his followers. He says this to his 12, and it's relevant. You'll hear its relevance. He says to them, you are those who have stayed with me in my trials. And I assign to you, as my father assigned to me, a kingdom that you may eat and drink at my table in my kingdom and sit on thrones judging the 12 tribes of Israel. Whatever you gave up to follow Jesus, consider that you will live forever in Jesus' presence, eating at his table with authority to disperse justice. That's the promise that Jesus is making to his disciples, but he's making it to all of his followers. 29 says, and everyone who has left houses or family, he's talking about everyone in the new world, the blessings of eternal life will be a hundred times greater than even the greatest things this world has to offer. Jesus isn't saying these things are bad. He's not saying you should give up those things because there's something inherently wrong with them. No, he's saying those things are are awesome. Those things are wonderful. They are, of of course, some of the best blessings that God can give. But if you are willing to give even those things up as a sacrifice for Jesus, if you are willing to give those things up, it's illustrating the fact that eternal life is a hundred times greater than that. To Jerusalem where he's going to suffer and die. So he's giving them the the grandest story, essentially, he could tell them. The story of the new creation and the glorious throne of Christ, where he will reign and they will reign with him, and they will be granted immortality and authority. And not just that, in a material world where they get to sit at table with Christ in his presence. This is what awaits all 
who make sacrifices today to follow Christ. So by showing how much better the new world will be than this one, it becomes clear that Jesus is talking about grace. By contrasting this good world, the good things of this world, with something that is a hundred times better, it's clear he's talking about things that we don't deserve. He's talking about God's kindness to the undeserving. Or as he summarizes it in verse 30, Many who are first will be last, and the last will be first. This is Jesus' way of saying those who don't deserve things in that day will receive authority and immortality, things a hundred times better than even the good things of this world. So we've seen what the content is of the promises for those who are wondering, is Christ worth it? Is Christ worth it? worth it? What will, we, what will we receive? And the answer, of course, authority and immortality in Christ's presence forever. That's the promise. Well, the next section, the next 16 verses is directly connected to this teaching. And Jesus wants us to read these two sections together. You'll notice in chapter 20, verse 1, the very first word of the next section is is for. Jesus wants us to think of the next section as an explanation. The parable of 21 through 16 is an explanation or a parable of the truth that he just explained to Peter and the 12. We know that because the the word for is an explanation word. For, and then he explains it. And we also know it, though, Because at the very end of this section, 2016, Jesus ends by saying essentially the same thing that he just said. He says the last will be first and the first will be last. It's a a repetition except with a slight modification of what he had said before. Now this story of the workers in the vineyard where we see the question why Christ followers receive anything at all answered is primarily a story that is designed to surprise us, to surprise us about the lavish grace of God, the lavish grace of God. When you look at the very first verse, it says the, the kingdom of heaven is like a master of a house. Now, in previous parables, the kingdom of heaven has been described to a thing or a story, but here the kingdom is described to a person, a master of a house. And he has vineyard that he needs people to work in. And so he goes to the market and he brings back workers early in the day. They agree on a price. It's at one denarius. And you would think he would have um, brought back as many uh, workers as he needed at the start of the day, but he doesn't. Instead, he goes back throughout the day, time after time, getting more and more workers. And he essentially says to him, uh, we'll come up with a fair price at the end of the day. And at the end of the day, he goes back one more time And he asks these men, why why haven't you uh, gone to work? Why haven't you gone to to work in somebody's vineyard? And he says, because no one has hired us. And in many ways, these are probably the worst workers that you would have found at the market that day. They would probably have been standing around. They've been there all day. Why would they have been overlooked? Perhaps they weren't very strong. Perhaps uh, they maybe had failed in the past. Uh, Perhaps these were the workers who um, people knew couldn't really deliver. Whatever it is, 
They had been there all day, verse 6 tells us. And he said to them, you go into the vineyard. This work, this, this master of the vineyard sends these most likely bottom of the barrel workers back into his vineyard. And at the end of the day, at the end of the day, he tells his foreman, he says, call the laborers. That is everyone. He's, he sent in like four waves of, of laborers. He says, call the laborers and pay them their wages. But who does he start with? If you look at verse eight, he begins with the last up to the first. And when those hired about the 11th hour came, what did they receive? They didn't receive a 10th of a day's wager. No, they received a denarius, the same thing that was agreed upon for the first workers, the same thing that was agreed upon for those who had worked the entire day in the heat of the sun, who were exhausted. They received the same amount. So, of course, uh, as any of us would do, when those who were hired first came, they assumed, oh, uh, I guess we're going to receive 10 times as much as those workers who only worked one hour, whereas we, we worked 10 hours through the heat of the day. But what does the second half of 10 tell us? They, each of them also received a denarius, that is one day's work. And on receiving it, they, they grumbled at the master of the house. They grumbled at the man in charge. You know, they were frustrated with him. And they, they said, hey, these, these undeserving <laughs> workers, these, these last worked only one hour, and you've made them equal to us who have, been, who have borne the burden of the day and the scorching heat. But the master, the one to whom is compared the kingdom of heaven, remember, the kingdom of heaven is like a master, he replies and he says, friend, I, I'm doing you no wrong. Did you not agree with me for a denarius? Take what belongs to you and go. I choose to give to this last worker. You hear the word last. To this last worker, as I give to you. Am I not allowed to do what I choose with what belongs to me? Or do you begrudge my generosity? Do you begrudge my undeserved kindness to these workers? Do you grumble at the grace of God? That's what he's asking these workers. And he's asking it to Peter. Remember, this is an explanation to help Peter understand the nature of grace. It's an explanation to help Peter and the 12 not grumble at the fact that others are going to get into the kingdom, perhaps with different stipulations than the 12 had. Maybe they will get in at the very end. Maybe they will get in early. Whatever it is, the master of the house who represents God the Father is teaching, is teaching us that God's grace is so lavish to the undeserving. It takes our economic systems of, of, of equal pay and, and getting what you deserve, and it turns it on its head, and it says that the last will be first. God will be generous to whomever he pleases. And if any of us actually get into that day, that last day, where we will sit on a throne with authority and immortality, it will be strictly because of the generosity of God. It will not be because we gave things up earlier in life. It will not be because we gave up more than other people. It will not be because we think in some way that we have earned our way into the kingdom of God. 
The point of the parable is to turn economic principles on their head, which actually seem relatively fair, and to teach us that the nature of the kingdom is that everyone gets in because of the lavish generosity of God, the lavish grace of God, so that when we, we sit on one of those thrones, we will not think to ourselves, I get to be here because I'm better than these people. I get to judge because I'm better. I get to have authority because I'm better. I get to have immortality because I'm better. No, no, we will conclude we are here only because of the generosity of God, only because of the lavish grace of God, the kindness to the undeserving like us. As he says at the end of the section, the last will be first and the first will be last. The story of grace on one hand strengthens us to endure motivates us by the joy that is found in knowing that God the Father is lavishing this grace on us, this undeserved favor. We are the workers at the end of the day. That's the point of the story. And if we think otherwise, then there's a warning in this very last word. The last will be first, and the first last. Some of us need to be encouraged by the fact that even though we consider ourselves the last, the undeserving, we think of ourselves as worthless. However you're thinking about yourself, if it's, if it's in some way that you think, oh, I, I could never be good enough for God, guess what? You're right. And the last will be first. But if you, like Peter, perhaps, are, are thinking about all the things you've done for Jesus, all the ways that you know, he owes you one, There's a hard word for us here. Um, The first will be last. That's a sober truth, but it's meant to humble us, to enable us to endure walking with Christ to the end, knowing, knowing that he has promised us authority and immortality, not because we've earned it, but because his spirit has enabled us to humbly repent and follow him as he calls us to do throughout the book of Matthew. So wherever you're at in this story, needing to be humbled or needing to be encouraged, hear this word for you and know that the the end of this story, the end of this story is that God is offering grace to all who will leave behind the things of this world and follow him. Leave behind the, fo- the things of this world and follow him, knowing, knowing, knowing that it is all undeserved kindness that enables you to follow in the first place. Let's pray. Uh, gracious God, we uh, desperately need your undeserved kindness. Uh, please send your spirit to... Uh, Keep us from grumbling against your generosity and instead enable us uh, to be humble uh, and to know uh, that we are to follow you with great hope uh, that you will grant us authority and immortality and getting to be in the presence of your son forever. Give us a, a, a longing for that day, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.
Now receive the Lord's benediction. May the God of hope fill you with all joy and peace in believing, so that by the power of the Holy Spirit you may abound in hope. Amen. Amen.